Hello, welcome to number 23 of The Last Outpost. My name is Kerry William Purcell. I'm having a little walk today through the Norfolk countryside. You can probably hear some of the birds. It's very, very quiet out here, but very hot. Well, today's guest is Ella Murtha. Ella is the daughter of the photographer Tish Murtha, who is probably most well known for documenting working class communities in the northeast of England. Tish Murtha sadly died around five years ago, just before her 57th birthday. In those past five years, her daughter Ella has been hard at work collating her mother's work into an archive, as well as crowdfunding a book on her work in the northeast and also forthcoming as she talks about towards the end of this episode there's going to be a retrospective exhibition of Tishmertha's work um, entitled Tishmertha Works 1976-1991 which will run at the Photographer's Gallery from the 15th of June until the 14th of October. I spoke with Ella via Skype so apologies for the slightly tinny sound of the interview um, but still, uh, I hope you enjoy it. Um, I started by asking Ella, how did her mum, Tish, first become involved with photography? area and what was happening was um, a lot of middle class curb crawlers were sort of turning up in suits and harassing my mum and her friends and she realised by just carrying a camera, it never actually had any film in it, but by carrying this camera she would whip it out and they would just speed off and leave them alone so it was sort of um, it was sort of like a, a defence really to start off with and she also said things like when when the kids and that were all playing around in derelict houses, like, and, you know, rather than getting knocked about by the coppers and stuff, the coppers would see the camera and sort of pat like my uncle Glenn on the head or whatever and just say, oh, now, now you'll you'll hurt yourself in here and <laughs> along sort of thing, you know, rather than a clip around the ear as they would have done. Yeah. So they, they kind of actually started off as a way of sort of protecting her and her friends and then when she could afford film, she would have some film. And um, it was her friend Joss who sort of encouraged her. She gave her a camera and she let her use her dark room and um, encouraged her to enrol on a night course. So it was a night course that she enrolled on in Newcastle. And so she just she just did it on the side and she realised that, you know, she really enjoyed doing it. And that's when... Um, she applied for the course at um, Newport Newport College of Art, which is now part of um, the University of Wales. I think it's moved to Cardiff now. It's the same course, mm. but it was originally at Newport College of Art, which David Hearn had recently set up. So for that, um, 
she had to go for an interview. And, I mean, David Hearn told me that they never used to look at portfolios. They weren't interested in looking at the work. <clears throat> he just wanted to know what she was interested in, what any of them were interested in. Because, you know, you, you, you can teach anyone to point a camera and blah de blah but unless they're actually genuinely interested in something, there was nothing he could do with them, was sort of the way that he looked at it. So she ended up applying for that course, being accepted, because um, she told him that she wanted to learn to take pictures of coppers kicking kids. <laughs> and so he said, you're in. <laughs> and he, he said it was one of the easiest interviews he'd ever done because he knew exactly, you know, he knew exactly what she meant. He knew that she had the passion and she he knew she wanted to do, like, social documentary work. And so she got herself the place and then it was just a matter of being able to afford it. So um, her tutor from the night course, he really championed her and he um, he made a case to the local education authority to get her a grant. And, I mean, it, that letter changed everything. I, I've actually published that letter in the book. Right. Because I felt it was so important because, I mean, people from a man's background, you didn't get to go to university. Do you mm. know, it wasn't... It's not something that would normally happen. So she was really, really fortunate. I mean, she it was a talent and a hard work. But if she hadn't have got that grant, there was absolutely no way that she was going to get to go to Newport. So that letter is, you know, massively important, and it, it changed a lot of things. Yeah, so it sort but, of um, opened the door for her. Exactly. Yeah, you know, you, there just wasn't that opportunity, and that that is part of what she's trying to say, you know, like in with all of the youth unemployment stuff, you know, they're just, it's just a squandering of a whole generation of human potential, mm. you know, they just, it, it is, and she called it vandalism, which it is, and she, so she was very, very lucky that she did get the opportunity to go to Newport. Yeah, I love, the, I love the idea that um, at the interview that they didn't look at work, and I suppose it sounds to me that the, uh, David Hearn was just trying to see whether someone was doing it for a passion or whether someone was doing it for a vocation. Um, exactly. You know. Exactly. And yeah. That, that's because he he said to me like somebody were coming and going. What are you interested in? And someone would go. Oh well, you know, um, I'm interested in life. And he was like, what, <laughs> what the hell does that mean? If we're all interested in life, otherwise we'd be dead. Do you know, he's like. He, he, he couldn't stand all of that arty-farty nonsense. He wanted to know what made somebody tick. Do you know what? Why did they want to photograph? And that is, that's the really good thing about that course. It, it taught them all. Yeah. It taught them all how to become photographers. You know, it taught them how to and how much hard work was involved and stuff. So it was, it was a fantastic course, it, and it, it, it changed yeah. a man's life. It's funny, it's, um, I, I, when I do interviews at, at the university I work at and, uh, um, you know, one of the things I often ask is, uh, why is this important to you? Um, yeah. You know, why is this important to you to do this? And uh, and often it's surprising, but, you know, students will actually just be stumped by it. Um, yeah. They can't They can't actually think why it's important. And, I, I, you know, I, my, I'm of the opinion if they can't f figure out why it's important to them, then they shouldn't be doing it. They should do something else. Exactly. You know. Exactly. It's, it's a very important point, you know. Otherwise, what what is the point, do you know? Do you know, are you doing it just because you think you should or... Or your friends are doing it or something, yeah. Exactly. 
exactly. Do you know, unless you care about something, unless you're passionate, you're not going to do a good job. You know, you're not. There's no point, is there? It's. Mm. I think that's that's one of the reasons why looking after a man's archive and doing the job that I'm doing because I am so passionate about it. It means so much to me. Yeah. To make sure that this work is not forgotten about. That I am passionate about it and. Do you know, I can, it's very personal to me. So in some ways it's a double-edged sword because I'm very sort of attached to it. But because I am passionate about it, I am going to do it the best that I can be, the best that I can do it sort of thing. Yeah, no, exactly. It's your life. I mean, well, obviously not all your life, but uh, it, it, it's, yeah. you know, it's not like, uh, we all we all have different parts to our lives, but um, but it's um, the, the, the the division between you and the, and that work and the, the work that you're doing, there really isn't a division, I suppose, sometimes. And um, um, that's the key, isn't it, I think? I mean, if you can find something that you're passionate about and you enjoy as well, is it really work? It's, you know, it's it's something, isn't it? If you find something to do that you enjoy, you'll never work a day in your life sort of thing. But, you know, it's it's an important point, like you say. You know, if if they can't tell you why they... Why it's important, then what is the point? It's funny, though, isn't it? Because... um, I mean, I come from a working-class background and uh, I've often found that there's a real suspicion sometimes that if you are doing something which you really enjoy, then it's not really work. Yeah. <laughs> like when you're going to get a proper job type of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. There, there is that persistence of that, I think, sometimes, um, which can be... Um, it puts you in a strange position, I think, when... Um, I mean, I, I'm, I've moved on a long, a long time from this now, but I remember when I used to go home and used to... Um, you know, talk about what I was doing and it felt like it was from another planet. Uh, sometimes uh, the work I was doing at university or whatever it is. And I think so it's always, it can be difficult sometimes to bridge that. And I think one of the interesting things about your mum, obviously, is that she went back, after doing the course, she went back to the northeast, and yeah. she started to actually um, document. But it wasn't documenting, um, like you say, I think you said elsewhere, from the outside, it was documenting from the inside. Um, exactly. Which yeah. um, there was a there was a lovely phrase um, taken from um, uh, a Velvet Underground song, which Nan Golden used, which you know, "I'll be your mirror," um, right. which I think is a really a lovely way of describing that approach to photography. Um, yeah. You know, the type of uh, "I'll be the mirror for you," um, and um, so uh, could you say a little bit about how? What happened when your mum went back and how she became... I mean, it sounds like she just picked up where she left off in some ways. Well, what her plan always seems to be that she wanted to learn how to become a better photographer and return to Newcastle because she wanted to try and help the kids. There. Do you know, that was, that was always seemed to be her plan. And, um, as I mean, as part of the, the college course, she did... She would, you know, like return home and document and stuff. And because there's quite a few stories from the college where it's sort of um, a day in the life of me mum. And she's just sort of like followed me nan around. And um, me nan has done the washing and gone shopping. And and then there's, um, there's, there's things like Halloween and Christmas. And they're really lovely for me to look at because it's, uh, you know, like all my aunties and uncles just all in the kitchen and my nana's at the sink and someone's carving a pumpkin, someone else is playing the guitar and everything, you know. 
it's almost though as if my man was invisible. I think everybody, everybody, I think who knew my man, you just got used. The camera was just always there, so you didn't even really notice it anymore. And she could be quite sneaky as well; like you wouldn't even really notice it. And it, she just sort of blended in. You, you didn't really notice you were being photographed, or you were just so used to it; it was just normal. But when she actually finished at Newport and she went back, um, she she was employed at the side gallery as mm. um, it was a manpower scheme. So it was um, it was do you know the the YTS scheme. Yes, yeah. she was employed. I was on, on exactly the same I was on the, yeah I was on the YTS yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I left I left school and I went to the local council. I never tell many people this these days, but um, yeah, I left school and I went to the local council and they sent me to every department in the council to figure out where where I wanted to be. And and, and what and what I figured out was I didn't want to be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh well, at least it worked out. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to stop you. Carry on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she, she was at the side gallery, and um, the the first photos, the earliest ones that I've, I've been looking at, are just all of the local kids playing, and um, it, it doesn't seem to have been for any particular project because she had she had juvenile jazz bands in 1979, which was an exhibition at the side gallery, and then she had youth unemployment in 1981. The Elsick kids photos are, are literally just the kids playing, and there's some of my absolute favourite because they are they're just some of them are just so lovely and they, you know you don't you don't so much see kids playing out nowadays so it's almost like a novelty and if you do see them out you know if you've got a camera out and start taking photos of them yeah. people would be suspicious so it's, yeah. it's just it's a different world isn't it but the the youth the, the jazz bands came first anyway and that was um I mean, actually, I've missed out a whole project there. There was the campaign to save Scotswood Works, which was, um, you know, the Vickers Armstrong factory. You might not know it. No, but I don't it, know that. it was a massive, massive factory um, in Newcastle, which made um, all the steel and everything, and um, it was being closed down. And there was a massive campaign, campaign by all the workers to try and keep it open. So she documented all of that when she was at the side gallery and she, she documented sort of lock-ins and the campaign and the marches and they all went to London and protested and everything and then when it actually eventually shut down they held um, they held something called the Awake <laughs> I was looking at it thinking Awake and it was in a local pub and it, because it was sort of the death of the factory they threw Awake for it and some of these photographs I mean, I've only got negatives of them, so you know, I, I need to get them properly done. But some of them look fantastic, and it, it's really sad because I mean, they'd fought so hard and for so long to try and keep this factory open, and then when it eventually did shut, this they celebrate. Well, they celebrated the life of the factory, so it was bittersweet. But you can see them all, you know, in the pub and with their families dancing and raising a glass to the factory. And I think when I get when I get the time to come down, come and sit down and look at them, I think that that will be a lovely project. Mm. But yeah, that was that was a project that she did. Then she did the jazz bands, which initially it started off. Um, do you know much about juvenile jazz bands? No, not at all. 
the sort of um, the sort of northeast phenomenon, the sort of swept the northeast, and um, they were a big thing and a lot of people wanted to have their kids in them and they would all go and they had snazzy uniforms and like like majorettes yeah of things what like marching and, bands um, or something yes like, yeah. like a marching band yeah yeah and um they would compete and there was big competitions and stuff so she did a project on that and to start off with, she had the backing of the people who, because the, the jazz band had committees, all of the different ones, and they were all in competition with each other and stuff, and they were all very strict. And she was going on the buses with them and accompanying them to all of the um, the competitions, which would happen at places like um, Gateshead Stadium and big places like that. And it was it was it was a big thing, and they would all, the winning team would get a massive trophy and stuff, but. While my mum started doing it, she she actually hated the jazz bands because um, my mum actually loved jazz music. Yeah. And she she felt like these jazz bands they weren't teaching them any music. There was no music involved. She said they were basically just teaching them how to walk in a straight line, right. and the only instrument involved was a kazoo. And what she didn't like was the way that a lot of the poorer kids were sort of they were excluded and if they couldn't afford the uniform and you know which it it was expensive to be able to afford a uniform and stuff she she got very upset anyway about the kids that were sort of excluded the the rejects as she called them and she started photographing these jazz band rejects on the streets of Elswick which what she liked about the rejects they would make a, a toy band they called them and they would get like an old sheet and they would have um, pan lids for the symbols and like an old broom with things tied on the end with bubbles. And they they would make their own jazz bands and they, they were they were marching around the streets of Elswick in their little toy bands. And she loved them because she said that these kids, the rejects, were using their imagination to the, the same extent that it was denied in the real ones. So mm. she, she photographed the official bands in all of the finery alongside, you know, these these kids in the back streets with the little um, pan lids and everything. Yeah. And when the exhibition came out, the jazz band committees, they were furious, they were livid, they, you know, they, they were writing to the local paper and everything, writing in letters of disgust about her, and they called her the demon snapper. <laughs> so that... <laughs> I think she loved that. I think she loved her little nickname, you know, because I've, I've got this really nice Christmas card that she sent to my nana, and it's signed from the Demon Snapper. <laughs> and, like, she's done, like, a little caricature of, like, the Demon Snapper. It's like a little camera with, with a pitchfork and devil's horns and a tail and stuff. And so that was, that was her first exhibition, and it caused a lot of controversy because of the way that she sort of... Um, she hadn't she hadn't slagged them off but she she was she wasn't glamorising it yeah and that that was that was her first exhibition anyway and then um, then she started to work on the, the youth unemployment and a lot of I mean a lot of the kids in there the pictures are my my uncles I mean one one really sad thing is um my uncle Carl, he's he's the youngest. My mum was one of ten, and Carl was the baby. And I mean, Carl left school. Um, 
he had really good um, GCSEs. He had a really good reference. I mean, I was just reading it the other day because my auntie found it, and it was quite heartbreaking, really, when you think about what's happened to Carl. But, I mean, this this reference that he left school with was just so lovely, and he wanted to work in drama. He wanted to, to be on stage, and this reference was saying, you know, how he, he was really good and everything and I mean he left school on the streets they, he went to the um, scheme and they just sent him an exciting opportunity had arisen and he had to report to this desk and he was um, given this exciting opportunity to, to be a gardener and sweep the streets and I mean my uncle Glenn is the one do you know the picture of the kid jumping out of the window? Yeah onto the beds and, yeah, yeah. So that, that's that's my who was jumping out of the window, and I mean, similar for him. You know, he was just sent on all of these slave labour schemes, and I think my mum was just so incensed that they had so much potential. You know, and they were just it was just being totally wasted. They were just being sent to dig streets and sweep streets and. That, that was the reason behind the Youth Unemployment Series. Anyway, mm. it's just I like can't a, remember what the question was. No, no, sure, no. It was just, I mean, you've sort of answered one of my questions, which was I was going to ask, you know, um, what I did see in a lot of those photos from that particular project was a lot of the same faces are coming up again and again. Um, and it, it feels like she was sort of uh, building... You know, a relationship with them, but um, obviously there was more for, more than that. There was a, a, a family, you know, connection as well. Yeah. But um, um, and also, it's what you just described. It just sounds like, you know, a poverty of the imagination about, um, you know, what what could possibly be done. And it's something that frustrates me even today. Actually, with some of my own family, um, when if there are no immediate jobs or things that they can do in the town they're growing up in then it's like, well, that's it. That's it. That's all you can do. And uh, you, you faced... And, and, and I get so angry sometimes that I, with some of my nephews and nieces and I'm just sort of like, you know, there's more than there's more uh, to the world than just Grinsby. You know, you can go out there and explore and there are places you could go to. If it doesn't work here, maybe try and go do something there. But there's a real fear, I think, sometimes among in working-class communities to try and actually... And not always, but um, to try and actually... You know, to say if someone does offer you something really terrible, to say no, I'm not doing that. I'm gonna, I'm yeah. gonna follow my desire and and my dreams to do something I really want to do. It's it's a really hard thing sometimes. I think, um, which yeah. I think still exists. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of those kids they probably never had the confidence to yeah, leave either. Exactly. And yeah. The one thing that keeps cropping up whenever whenever um, I hear from anybody there, do you know the main thing that they all say is they were the best days of their lives and the fact that they were such a community, do you know, they, they were, you were never on your own, do you know, you, there was always a gang of you and you'd be in and out of each other's houses and everybody looked out for each other and I suppose if you leave in that safety net as well, it's it's probably quite scary as well, isn't it? I mean, it didn't apply to my mum because I always like my mum to like, the littlest hobo. She 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 never seemed to settle. You know, she would just she she was never settled. She would. We moved so many times. It was literally we're moving on Monday, 
and then like the enlarger and everything would all get packed up into my nana's attic and and we'd be off you know like <laughs> yeah. so it probably frustrated my mum a bit that you know that some people couldn't or wouldn't leave but, yeah you know the the main thing behind the youth unemployment was just this whole lack the lack of opportunity for them and yeah. how if you if you're told enough times that you're worthless and you're never going to amount to anything, you start to believe it, don't you? Yeah, and yeah. They, they just didn't believe that they could they could be anything more than street sweepers, you know, or gardeners. And but, whereas I think like our family it was working class, you know, like me, my granddad was a scrapman, but my nana, she always encouraged she always encouraged them all to be creative you know she'd use any money she had to get little coloring pencils plasticine they all played instruments you know she she was very very creative i mean my granda would be playing it was an out of tune pub piano and stuff but it was very much even though they were working class my nana always encouraged everyone to be as creative as possible you know like so maybe that is what what pushed my mum to sort of get out and leave mm. and spread her wings a bit, you know. There's also something, but, uh, was your um, nana Irish? No, I think the Irish comes from my granddad's side. Right. I mean, only, the, only, yeah, the, the only reason I say is because my mother's Irish and uh, she came from a family of uh, 11. And um, right. uh, there's something... Um, there's something of sort of the, uh, a, a sort of traveller element to my mum and to my mum's family, yeah. and I think I've inherited those genes where I've, I've moved yeah. around so much, I've lived in so many different places, um, um, and only obviously because of having family that you end up having to stay somewhere eventually just for their sanity. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's something I've definitely recognised in children of Irish uh, parents or grandparents. Yeah, my mum, she never, ever settled, you know, like, she just, she just, she just get itchy feet, and, I mean, as a result, now, I, I, I've lived in the same place now for, I'm trying to think how many years it's been, maybe, oh God, you, when you get older, all time just disappears, doesn't it? It's, yeah. it's been a long time, anyway, about 13 years, and I think I've finally got some roots, whereas when I was a child... I did. We did. Like, like you say, we moved around so many times, and but that that was just normal to me then, you know. Like, mm. but yeah, she she just seemed to have this quest. I, I I don't know what it was, but she just wanted to keep moving around. But she went to London for for, for five years, did she? Yeah, we, she she initially moved to London um, after the youth unemployment. Yeah, she, she moved there in eighty two, and um, yeah, she had um. She, had a big exhibition to do uh, it was all on Soho and um, it was at the Photographer's Gallery in 1983 and uh, it was very very different, very different to the youth unemployment stuff and she was photographing sort of anything and everything really you know she was um, any work she, can, she could get but she was doing things like photographing psychics in, in psychic conventions in return like She'd give them photographs, and um, she was doing when Julian Clary first came out. He was Julian Pieface before he then went on to do John Collins uh, fan club and things like that. And it w- it was all sort of like the comedy circuit. She was taking photographs of nightlife and things like that. And um, the exhibition 
at the photographer's gallery in 83. That was um, to do with like Soho and sex workers. And she worked with um, her really good friend, Karen, who was, it's quite a funny story when I've, my mum used to tell me about it and stuff, but since I've been working on the archive, I've sort of pieced more, more of it together. But Karen, um, she was from a strict Mormon family in Canada and she was living in London and she was working as a stripper. And they lived in the same house, which was in Little Russell Street in Holborn. And my mum was on the bottom floor and Karen was on the top floor. And Karen had just come back from Italy where she'd been working as um, a champagne waitress. And she was really, really shocked by how people's attitudes to her, that she sort of expected to have sex with her. Mm. And she was really, really horrified by that. And she, was, she, she wasn't she was naive because she'd been working as a stripper in London on and off for years, but it was this sort of, this expectation that they were going to have sex with her. And so she'd come back and she she was quite shocked by that. And my mum had just been commissioned to do a project on Soho. So Karen and my mum decided to work together and Karen wrote and chose all the texts to go with the pictures and my mum took the pictures and together, um, they sort of, it, it was the same way that my mum always worked, you know, she she built up relationships with the people that she, she photographed, you know, she wasn't an opportunist, she wasn't just trying to catch people out, you know, the way that she worked was she got, she spent time getting to know them, so they would, um, there's like notes and stuff about how they've, all these nights working in Soho and then they've, they'd gone back to the house in Little Russell Street and sat and drank and smoked into the early hours listening to Elgar and Miles Davis and stuff with all of these people from um, the strip clubs and stuff. And that is how those photographs came to life. Mm. But um, by the end of that exhibition, um, my mum thought she was dying because she was so ill and she said she was about six stone, absolute, she just felt like death. And it turned out that... Um, she was about four months pregnant with me. So, like, I, I came along and turned the world upside down. And um, not long after that, Karen was killed in a hit-and-run accident as well. So, sort of everything changed for my mum. And we ended up moving back to Newcastle, which is where, like, my nana and all the family were. So we ended up back in Elswick, which is where all of the, the youth unemployment pictures and everything were from. Mm. So... We ended up back there, and then my mum was quite shocked by how the area had changed just in those years that she'd been away. And it was sort of it was late eighties into early nineties, and there was there was a lot of um, what my mum found quite sort of upsetting for my mum was what she loved about London was its multiculturalness and how. You know, you can walk down the street and there's people of all different nationalities and you can buy, like, Turkish food. You, you, you can literally get anything in London. Yeah. She loved the multi multicultural aspect of that. And so going back to this little small community, um, the new project was a look at racism and cultural diversity. The, you know, a lot of things had changed. There's some pictures where the local mosque was on fire. Um, there's things like... National Front graffiti appearing, you know, and just just things like that. And the, these are the pictures that I remember waking up to. So, like, when she'd been pulling an all-nighter printing and there was just these washing lines hung all over the house when I'd wake up 
these are sort of the pictures that I vividly remember um, from from my childhood. And because I obviously wasn't around when all the youth unemployment and the Soho pictures were getting taken, I still hadn't arrived. But these ones, I feel very not not involved because I, I wasn't there when she took the pictures, but because she was doing them around raising me and I would wake up to the these pictures hanging everywhere, I feel sort of quite um, quite linked to them in some way. is actually being curated by Val Williams and Gordon MacDonald. So I have, I mean, obviously I've got my favourite images and there's images that are very important to me, but ultimately it's going to be curated by Gordon and Val. So so they're still in the process at the minute of selected images. And it's all, it's, it's, it seems crazy that it's only two months away. Mm. And uh, I'm just so excited for people to actually see more you know it's it's not new work to me but th- this is the thing that was this is when I was talking to Gordon about this and I said like I take these pictures for granted because I just grew up with them and they were on our walls these photographs to me are just our wallpaper and when I see like when when someone sees one of these pictures for the first time and because quite a lot of the time people contact me just to let me know how much a certain picture has meant to them and things like that. It's it's overwhelming, really, to hear mm. that and to see people's reactions. And Gordon said to me, like, when when the exhibition opens, that, you know, like, when I'm stood there and I see people walking and looking at these pictures, that's going to be another crazy moment for me. Because it is, it's like, I'm so... like personally and emotionally involved with the pictures that sometimes I do have to sort of take a step back yeah yeah I was going to say that it's not something I don't know I would necessarily recommend to do it's um you know because yeah when you're so emotionally involved with something I think you do sort of just have to take a step back and I mean there's I've got like 30,000 negatives. <laughs> it's, it would be impossible to sort of... I mean, I, I've, got, I've got enough for loads of different exhibitions and stuff. So for, so for this retrospective, I think for the first one, for the, for the whole reason that I want to show the world other stuff that hasn't been seen yet. Mm. This is not all of it. This is just still a very small selection. But yeah, Gordon and Val will be curating it. And I think that that is the best decision for this first exhibition, I think. Do you have any type of creative outlet, creative practice yourself or...? Well, for me, it was always music. Right. I always wanted to be a singer and, um, and and an actress, but mostly singing. And, that you know, it's what my mum always encouraged me to do. And, um, I mean, I can still hear her now saying, don't let your talents go to waste. Like, <laughs> like she wouldn't be mad because I, I, don't, I don't sing anymore. 
and so like I can actually feel her sort of her wrath. But I mean, in my defence, I don't have time at the moment. Yeah. But do you know, it is it, it's always been music. It's what she always encouraged me to be. Like I, I always remember my uncle Glenn um, making me. Do you know, like the pallets, the wooden pallets? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He he made me a stage. He'd like he'd, out of a palette, he'd sanded it down and he'd painted it blue, and it had my name on in, with a star. And we had this palette in the living room, and like God help anyone who came round, because you know they'd, they'd have to watch the show. <laughs> I would say, like, I, I don't even know how my mum put up with me. Like I, I would literally came out of the womb with jazz hands. I think <laughs> child star. And, oh, but like, but she just she encouraged it so much, and it's like. I used to make my own radio shows. Like I used to have these little black cassette tapes, and they, they weren't that long. They were only quite short. But like by the time my mum had come down on a morning, I would have sort of done a radio show, written a play, <laughs> done a book, and on the back of the books always had this logo, Bertha Productions, and like and I'd done all that before she even got up. You know, like on a Saturday, like. <laughs> You know, I don't know where she found the energy to put up with me, but she did. You know, she just she she encouraged it all, and like I say, I had my stage, and the cousins came round. We'd all we'd go off, we'd we'd write a play and everything, and we'd we'd come back, and we'd, we'd all they'd all have to sit there and watch us act these plays out. And do you know, it was it was it was a magical childhood. And my godfather Philip was an actor, and um, he was in a lot of lot of theatre productions like I remember I must have only been about three and he was the the lion in The Wizard of Oz and I, I remember going to see him and, but I remember him taking me on stage and walking along the yellow oh, brick road God. and he was he was Mr Bumble in Oliver and so like I, my dream was always to be Nancy and um, I mean I did it when I was 19 in an amateur production in Middlesbrough and everything that was that was fantastic but yeah that was that that was my dream it was always music it was always singing and she thoroughly encouraged it yeah yeah well it goes back to that thing doesn't it about you know sort of wide horizons and about you know saying that you know anything's possible really um and encouraging that that confidence which was saying yeah. a lot of a lot of children from working class communities um, often um, sometimes lack, um, partly because of, you know, like I was saying about um, uh, my family, that uh, if it's not bringing money in immediately, then, you know, um, it doesn't really, it's, it doesn't have much worth in some sense because of just because just yeah. of the immediate needs of, the, of survival. Yeah. You know, so it's, um, you know, it's great. It sounds, it sounds quite a magical upbringing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's cringy though having to listen back. I mean, she, she, found, she found a bag of them when I think I just started going out with Paul, and like she played us for like because she used to listen to Radio Four. Um, when I used to, I used to read read the news, and I would do it in a really posh accent, and then I would do the shipping forecast afterwards because <laughs> you know, that's what I'd then, then the archers would come on and stuff and. But yeah, it, oh, these these she, these sound like they should be on YouTube or something. <laughs> oh God, no! It, do you know what? You know when you literally just curl up. And yeah, down yeah, and yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got episodes like that from my childhood, from my teens, when I was being, being all pretentious about, you know, doing something and uh, some really badly written poetry or something. And 
but I mean, she, she at the time, you know, she was like, oh, this is the most wonderful thing. Like she, she made me feel like these things were just amazing. And when I listen back, I'm like, oh my god, like how, how did she put up listening to that day in day out? Well, because she, because yeah. she loved you. That's why. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to thank Ella for agreeing to be interviewed for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, definitely go and check out um, her mum's work on her website, which you can find at tishmurtha.co.uk. Also, I'm currently having a site built for the last outpost so I can show images of the guests and their work, which I think would be useful uh, for future episodes. Okay, well, thanks for listening, and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.